Uh, hey, this is Ross Payne with Roleplaying Public Radio. Uh, I'm here with Monty Cook of Monty Cook Games. Uh, here talking about Invisible Sun, his newest uh, project for that's currently on Kickstarter. Uh, when you're listening to this, if you're not diving back in the archives quite a ways, uh, so Invisible Sun, um, it's it looks, v- <laughs> it, I mean, it looks beautiful, uh, but it's uh, very. Um, well, I, it's hard to describe it first, so I guess maybe you can describe it better than I can. Just <laughs> um, well, so uh, Invisible Sun is a lot of things. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's this, uh, what we call the Black Cube, um, and it is just jam-packed full of, of cool stuff. Um, books and dice and cards, and uh, there's a, a board that you play the cards on, and, and uh, it's... It, there's a lot going on, and and that's a that's a big part of it. Um, I wanted to create a game that was that really sort of involved uh, and, and embraced the tabletop in that way, and made the tabletop experience something really really cool. Um, and uh, I did that because uh, the theme of the game, or what I should say, one of the themes of the game, is escape. And, uh, and so, I mean, at its heart, it is a, it is a surreal fantasy sort of game. Um, and the, the core sort of story, the conceit is, is that, uh, the reality that we see around us every day is not real. Uh, and that there is this much greater, larger, stranger world called the actuality. And, uh, and, but, but I, and so, so you're escaping, what we call shadow or you have escaped shadow, which is the quote unquote real world and gone into the actuality. And that, that theme of escape is carried through into the design of the game itself. Um, because the other thing that is, that is invisible sun, that, that is uh, a, a big part of this game is the idea that, you know, there's a lot of barriers in modern day life. Uh, particularly, you know, if you're, uh, you know, an adult role player, uh, that, you know, keep us from playing the game, right? It's just mm-hmm. schedules and, you know, people not being able to make it and school and work and family and all these things, right? They're keeping us from escaping into a larger world of imagination, right? I mean, the, the very nature of what a role-playing game is. And so, uh, what we've done is we've, Embrace to the tabletop. We're not. Uh, th- there's been some misconception that Invisible Sun isn't a game that you play around the table. You do. Um, you play, and in fact, we're kind of embracing that and making that a really special experience. But then we are also creating an experience that you play away from the table, and that's the part where we, you know, kind of overcome some of those barriers because you can literally play portions of this game you know, with just you and your GM sitting in the coffee shop or, you know, uh, online or via email or on the phone for that matter. Um, you know, you can, and so there, there's kind of these, these two levels, uh, of play that we are embracing. Um, cause I think there's a lot of opportunity for richness in both of them, but they're very different. Um, so we're celebrating those, you know, great times whenever we can get together around the table, and we're doing that with, you know, this sort of elaborate game. But then at the same time, we're also empowering people to just uh, play, you know, kind of mostly in their head, you know, on their own or with just a couple other players. Okay. Um, so how does that work? I mean, like, um, because, yeah, the, the Kickstarter does make a, a, a great sort of presentation of this black cube that unfolds and reveals all these game components and um, yeah, celebrating the sort of physicality of being around a table. Uh, I, I can definitely see that, but how does that second part work? Because one thing I did notice, and I think uh, someone answered uh, from your company um, on the G plus page that they're confirming that there was not going to be a all digital version, uh, an all digital tier uh, for the reward. So how, how does that, how does this, uh, other level of play work. So um, basically, uh, well, the best thing that you can do to understand what well, we call this, we call this uh, development mode, as in character development mode, um, and and that's to distinguish it from action mode, 
which is, you know, kind of obvious, straightforward combat or chase scenes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what we call narrative mode, which is sort of the other stuff, you know, when you're traveling or, or investigating or talking to people or whatever. Um, development mode is where, uh, either initiated by a player or the GM, mm-hmm. uh, you kind of break away from the, the standard narrative and you use, it is a, it is sort of a different, level mechanically in the game. And and the best way for me to illustrate that is, you know, if you're playing in action mode, right, which we kind of all understand, you know, you've got an initiative order and everybody takes one action and that kind of thing that goes on in, in most role-playing games. Sure. Right. We all understand that. And we all understand the difference between that mechanically and, and narrative mode, right, where you're not keeping track of whose turn it is or whatever. You're just kind of you know, in the library, looking for books, talking to the librarian, you know, whatever, right? Mm. Um, so development mode is like another step removed. Um, and in it, you know, you're not, you don't use dice. Um, instead, you use, uh, in the game, we have uh, this deck of cards called the Sooth deck. You're, you're using Sooth cards instead of dice. Uh, it's, it's, it's much less mechanical. Mm-hmm. Um, you might not even need your character sheet, really. I mean, you, you might because you want to keep notes or refer back to things, but, but you're not going to be like checking your ability scores and things like that. It's not that. It, it, it's, a, it's another level removed from that. Um, and, and it becomes just very, very story-based. But the cool thing about it is is that because you're breaking away from the regular narrative, you can do things that you wouldn't necessarily normally do. For example, uh, you could, in the example video that we have, um, which I think I started to mention and then got sidetracked myself, but but that's really the best way to understand it, is to watch um, the video because you can kind of see it happen. And in that example... Uh, one of the players, you know, the players at the table are confronting this challenge. They don't know how to overcome it. And one of the players realizes that maybe her character had been here before that fits into her background. And so the GM and that player get together in between sessions and they play through, um, you know, an idea that is basically a, like a flashback. You know, if you're watching the game as a movie, it would be a flashback scene mm-hmm. where you're seeing her in the past with, you know, the guy who was her mentor and whatever. And you see how she figures out how to get over, overcome this challenge so that when the next session starts, she, she has the, the right idea, right? She has the thing that will, will get them onto the next scene. And, and so you can do things like that. You can focus in more on, you know, personal story arcs, you know, sometimes I know that when I'm running a game and I've got six people there at the table or whatever, and one person has something that's very personal to them, you know, I want to reward them for that. But at the same time, I don't want five people to just sit there and do nothing for, you know, 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever. So sometimes I think we overtly or, or, or subtly kind of discourage that kind of single, personal story kind of thing. Um, and this idea of development mode takes that and, and, and really, really not only makes it possible, but really focuses on it and makes that a really important part of the game. So, um, you know, we, we talk in the game about character arcs, you know, we don't have like levels or tiers or, or anything like that, but, but instead we have character arcs where, you know, you quote unquote advance by, by moving your character along a a series of personal arcs that you have. And some of those might intersect with the other players and become group arcs, but some of them are just yours. I see. Um, so the, the development mode is kind of meant, um, so that, that is not a hundred percent necessary though. If you, if you want to stick with the, the standard sort of tabletop group, or if you don't have time necessarily to do development between game sessions, uh, that's required, but you, you're you're providing mechanics for allowing one-on-one vignettes or personal scenes in right. between sessions. That's that, that that did I get that more or less right? I guess more or less. Um, okay. They don't have to be one-on-one. Okay, um, you can have two players in a side scene. Um, you can uh, there will be uh, an app that will uh, facilitate some of the communication in some of this stuff, so that okay. you can actually. Uh, you could have a side scene with two players where the GM actually isn't there. 
right? Because sometimes the GM's the problem, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, they can't make it. They've got a busy schedule. Um, and so uh, the GM, you know, can, can uh, basically turn over a card within the function of the app. The, mm-hmm. car- the players can see that and they can figure out what happens in that side scene based on, you know, the, what ha- that turn of that card and how that's going to shape what they're going to do. And then, you know, and then communicate sort of virtually with the GM. I see. Um, so what kind of things are on these uh, uh, in the suit deck? Like, what are the kind of prompts or uh, descriptions do you have? Because uh, I was so, looking on the Kickstarter page. They're not, I mean, as of when we're recording, I don't see any examples. But, you know, obviously, I guess that might be revealed more in the future. But So um, the suit deck is... is like like all the occult elements of Invisible Sun, occult, uh, uh, Invisible Sun is a very uh, occult-based game, obviously, but nothing is from the real world. Everything is sort of uh, taken and, 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 it, and generated in a new way. So obviously this is based on, on tarot, um, but the, the setup is different. Um, and so all of the cards, there aren't... There are card families rather than suits, and they and so like there isn't a three of wands or whatever. All of the cards have uh, specific names and specific meanings, and so um, basically what you'll have is either you know referring to the book, or this will probably be a part of the app as well, mm-hmm. uh, because because you're going to be doing this in development mode as well. Um, that you know, they'll each card will have a number of sort of different things associated with it that uh, will either be idea generators for the GM, you know, to handle kind of the weirdness of the game, or they will be really straightforward things like, uh, you know, when when the when a certain card is turned, divination spells um, don't work as well, for example, right? That's just just one sort of example. And so while that card is sort of in play, while that card is active, it changes the way that kind of magic works. And that kind of thing will happen, um, you know, throughout the game, not not like on a round-by-round basis, but, but, you know, it'll happen. And that is what one of the things that sort of uh, makes magic in the game very uh, unpredictable and dangerous because you never know exactly how the cards are going to turn, what effects they might have on the spells that you're going to cast or the magic that you're going to use or, or whatever, however you are expressing your magic. And so uh, it really kind of changes the flow of things and makes magic a, an interesting rather than just purely mechanical sort of thing. I see. Um it sounds uh, quite intriguing. I, I, I would like to look through the, the suit deck at some point, um, but to get a better sense of the, the it's, it sounds very uh, promising. But um, you mentioned, yeah, you, that this game has a lot of occult themes. Um, how did you develop uh, the concept for Invisible Setting or for Invisible Sun and the sort of the setting for it? Um, I mean, it, it is a kind of a break from. Uh, your cipher system games, uh, I mean, right. not entirely, but like you know the the Gnostic theme of like there's a real world and then there's the false world that we see and that kind of thing. Uh, right. So it's yeah. So, um, well, you know, it's 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 just sort of a personal passion of mine and has been for a really long time. Um, and so you know, I've got you know, like a lot of game designers, to be honest, I've got a weird library in my house full of books that, you know, like sort of no one sees but me. <laughs> sure, sure. Right, right. Because they're, you know, weird, weird occult books. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I really like that kind of thing. I'm really interested in it. I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, all different levels of that, whether, you know, where it intersects with, with re- religion, where it intersects with with social um, ideas and you know uh, real world conspiracies and things like that, um, that's always been a real passion of mine. I've written about that a lot in the past, and so um, Invisible Sun is just kind of uh, an expression of 
you know, my, my love of the surreal, um, my love of just, you know, uh, the idea of a world where things just don't work like we think they do at all, right? It's not just our reality, but slightly tweaked, right? It's not just, um, you know, th- this is not a game where you're going to play and it's going to be just like the modern world, except there's magic. The, um, basically, this, this, you know, once the player characters learn and, and uh, that that the actuality exists, shadow, which is you know our world, is basically just cast off, right? It's not it's not really a dualistic sort of thing. It's a oh this is this is nothing, right? This is shadow. This is this is a deception. Um, let's go into the real world and explore you know the actuality and explore that because that's far more interesting and and it's and it's real, right? Um, so. Uh, you know, I love surreal art. I love, you know, just kind of all of that stuff. And I've always been a huge fan, you know, when it comes to fantasy of, of magic that really kind of turns everything upside down. Right. And, and, you know, um, you know, I'm the child, I'm a child of the seventies. And if you look back at, uh, like seventies science fiction and fantasy covers, they're all very, uh, they're all very surreal, um, and 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 it's they're not meant to be taken literally. But because I was a kid, you know, I would go through the library and I'd look at the science fiction fantasy section, and I would think, you know, oh, this really is a book about a giant hand that comes up out of the ground and holds an entire city in its palm, and right, and or whatever, right? Which is, right. you know, of course, just meant to be a a metaphor on the cover. But I wanted that to be real, right? And so, in in a way. Um, you know, Invisible Sun is just simply, what if you took all that cool, weird, surreal art and you just said, okay, that, that is all literally what is happening, right? That is the literal truth. You know, there is a city that exists in a hand, you know, and, and you have to go visit it and figure out what's going on there. Um, that's kind of Invisible Sun. Okay. I see. So, um, yeah, a lot of the, these kind of, uh, other role-playing games with these sort of themes, um... And when I read the, uh, heard about the initial pitch, it, it sort of reminded me of like Changeling, uh, right. and Mage, and they, uh, cult. yeah, and Cult. Cult. That was another one. You're um, right. But, right, and those are awesome games. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, I just that isn't that isn't where I wanted to go, or I wanted right. to. You know, um, but but I think those games are cool, right? I, I love those games too. Right. Well, I mean, in those games, there is a lot of going back and forth between the real world and the, the, or the, you know, what we think is the real world and what the, you know, the occult secret world is. Uh, but you're saying in invisible sun, you spend basically the shadow is it exists, but the entire game is spent in the actuality. There's no real reason to go back to the shadow. Yeah. In fact, one of the sort of meta conceits that we have is, um, player characters in this game are called uh, Vizlai because um, the patron uh, guardian of the gate of the Invisible Sun is is this entity called Vizla. Anyway, Vizlai, um, you know, we're all sort of exiles in shadow, um, hiding from this the fallout of this horrible war in the actuality, and now they're slowly kind of realize, they, realizing that they've been in shadow for so long that they forgot. The mm-hmm. truth, right? And so they're kind of it, it is a matter of of not just uh, not really discovering, it's remembering. Mm-hmm. And so um the thing is is that they spent so much time in shadow that one of the meta conceits is that sometimes you get pulled back in, right? The lure of your life as a you know, an accountant or whatever it was <laughs> that you were uh, in shadow, you know, pulls you back. And so um, we use that conceit. Um, if you're playing the game, right. And all of a sudden last minute, one of your players says, Hey, I, I, I can't make it. Sorry guys. Right. You say, well, he got, he got drawn back into shadow and, <laughs> and it is this, you know, kind of this straightforward thing that it can, that explains what happens you know, in everyone's role-playing game experience, right. right? Where you're just like, okay, uh, Bruce isn't here this week. Uh, I guess, you know, I, I don't know what he does. I guess he goes off and visits his mom or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, there's a built-in explanation for how he just kind of immediately disappears and how he immediately reappears, you know, when he can play again. I see. 
Uh, no, that's a good idea. Um, that in some genres that's easier to do than others, but uh, that that certainly works. Um, in terms of developing the game and actually creating it, like how did you go from I have an idea to I have a metal, I have a black cube that folds out, and here is a you know a statue of a hand and all this other stuff. Like how how did that work out? Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, I mean, so. It, it starts just as this would be a cool game for me to run. Um, that's basically how all of these things start. Um, this this is just this is a game I want to run. I'm, I'm I'm always almost always the game master in the games that I play. So that's kind of the genesis of these ideas come from. And and I and so it, it starts there and it starts very traditionally, right? Just kind of regular role playing game. Um, but, but as I'm exploring the ideas, I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, this is a game about secrets. Um, and secrets are, are literally a currency in this game. Um, and, and, you know, and so I'm imagining this, you know, a, a game where, where the game itself is filled with secrets that, that the person who's reading, I mean, literally the game master or the player who's sitting there reading the book or, or opening the box or going through the cards or whatever, they are uncovering secrets. Um, there are, there are hidden things in the box. There are hidden things in the books. Um, and so there is that aspect of the game and, and that is an expression of, you know, one of the major themes of the game. And so that's kind of the genesis of how this thing built and became, like you said, a, a, a big box full of full of stuff, um, and so uh, you know it also you know comes from uh, a lot of experiences that I have had in the past. I mean, obviously, I've been gaming for mm-hmm. almost forty years now, um, which is crazy, <laughs> um, but. Uh, you know, like when I was a kid, for example, and played Dungeons and Dragons with my friends every Friday night, we would all walk home together mm-hmm. from school, right? And and we would start talking about the game. And the next thing you knew, right, even while we're still walking down the sidewalk, we're, we're playing the game. Um, because, you know, someone is, you know, they're interacting with, you know, I'm going to say this to this person. Well, then, you know, she's probably going to say this back to you. And, and, and suddenly you're playing and, and, you know, and if suddenly a die roll or something was needed, we would quickly run to one of our houses and, you know, run to the basement, (laughs) grab dice. Right. And, and, but, but that kind of experience, I've had different sorts of things like that where, you know, I wanted to recapture that. I wanted to make that kind of thing possible and so that's where the development mode kind of comes from okay and uh you know there's another experience as well uh i mean there are many but but one of them really sticks out i again much much later but still playing dungeons and dragons uh with this group of people there's this new player she played for about four or five sessions and she didn't seem like she was having a very good time and so after one session I, you know, I took her aside and I said, you know, you're, you're not really participating very much. You're really quiet. Are you, are you okay? Are you not enjoying yourself? Can I do something different? And, you know, suddenly she starts talking about her character and suddenly exposing sort of this rich internal life of, well, my character likes this and, and she doesn't like this guy. And when this thing happened, it was hugely impactful to her. And all of that stuff has been sort of invisible to me because it had all been internal mm-hmm. and and you know right then and there i i realized i want to make a game where that player is 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 embraced right where that kind of player who is really deep down you know in the immersiveness of the game um but 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 basically the game is ignoring her um, I didn't, you know, you can, there, there are aspects of this game, you know, obviously, uh, what, you know, what I'm really talking about here is someone who's like a really, uh, a major introvert. Right. And, and so, uh, being a major introvert myself, actually, I, I wanted to create a game that, that rewards and, and addresses the idea that there are introverts and extroverts at the same time, right? Because 
people, if, if you're going to make a game that's really, really focused on immersion, you've got to understand how people sort of get immersed in games and, and realizing that different people do it in different ways, right? We all know the sort of thespian type of role player who, you know, is, becomes immersive by, by being dramatic and whatnot. Right the table and everything. And that's awesome. And, and the, this game, you know, is going to encourage and reward that. But at the same time, you know, the guy who is, is kind of sitting in the back and isn't super flamboyant, isn't, you know, he keeps to himself or whatever. He can still have a very immersive experience too. Right. And so like there are, there are aspects of this game that involve, uh, like I, I mentioned before about story arcs. And, and mm-hmm. so, they they kind of encourage players to figure out ways in which the events of the of the main narrative are figured into their own personal story arcs. And so if you're an extrovert, you can do that sort of out loud, you know, in front of everybody and the GM and say, this is what's happening and this is how I feel about this and whatever. Um, but if you're more of an introvert, right, you can just write it down. You can talk to the GM, you know, one-on-one, um, you know, things like that. Uh, I, I think... You know, I, I just want to do everything that I can to sort of address whatever it is that makes people sort of get immersed in a game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, and and uh, recognizing that there are different player types is certainly an important part of that. Um, and, I mean, aside from develop mode, are there any other aspects that you are sort of tailoring the game design to appeal to uh, as wide a range of players as possible? Um and sort of as an aside, a question. Um, I understand the, the the setting now of the actuality in the shadow uh, at least a little bit, but like uh, in most role playing games, it's easy to summarize like what it is by defining what the players do. You know, in Shadowrun, you're a mercenary who takes jobs from you know Mr. Johnson's, and you're inevitably betrayed. In a Dungeons and Dragons, you go out and you kill monsters for gold and to save the day. Uh, what do the characters? Of, so, uh, them. So yeah, sorry, two questions. But um, what what other aspects are you doing to appeal to other player types? And then what do the player characters do? So the player characters, um, like I said, they're all called Vizla or Vizlai, and uh, Vizlai uh, all utilize magic in in some way, and, and some of that is kind of the more straightforward kind of spell casting. But others also characters that are makers that you know make things that work in a magical way or there are um, uh, goetics that summon weird creatures from beyond and whatever. Um, so everyone has their own different way of, of expressing their their interaction with magic. And what they do is basically uh, like I said, the theme of the game is secrets. They seek out secrets and truths and um, and they use those uh, for themselves, for their own goals, right? They, everyone can have a different reason why they are looking for these secrets. And these secrets can be very simple, like, you know, little power-ups or whatever you want to call them. But but there are also larger secrets that have to do with the, the setting and the truth and, and, and the actuality and, and the secrets behind reality itself, right? And so, so they're still, like, investigators, in a sense, I guess. In a sense, right? Um, yeah, it, it is kind of an investigation sort of thing. Um, but, but the idea here is that a lot of this becomes very, very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and everyone has got their own personal reason for why they're doing it. It's not it's not like a save the world kind of thing or an uncover the evil conspiracy kind of thing. It's more a everyone's got these own personal things. Like for example, uh, all the, with with a few exceptions, all of his life have houses. That is that is an aspect of your character, your house, um, and. Uh, and, and Vizla houses are always weird, right? There's, they're haunted. They're, they're, they're bigger on the inside than the outside. There's weird secret rooms, whatever. And that's one of the ways in which, uh, as you go on, your character develops. Well, your, your house does too. And you might discover new things about your house. You might discover that your house has a weird past, um, and you want to uncover more about that. You might discover that it's got a locked door that you don't know how to open and, you know, no attempts to get through that door succeed. And so there must be a way in. Right. And so these things become 
personal goals, maybe, um, for how furthering your the development of your character. I mean, that's just one aspect, right? But but um, you know, those kinds of things we want to build those right into the game, um, and and make it so that. Uh, you know, for example, when you're when you're creating your character and you're making these character choices for yourself, each one of them will have a potential list of of possible things that become important to you mm-hmm. and 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 become part of those story arcs that we were talking about. And so, um, you know, you're you're always looking for the truth. You're always looking to uncover secrets. But it, but the important part is how those things affect your character personally. I got you. Um, so do you have like some examples of some of these, like um, from like the play test of like what the characters arcs, what the player characters arcs were or like what kind of things? Actually, the, uh, yeah. the, the one that I, that I mentioned um, is, is uh, the one that happened most recently where one of the characters um, sort of discovered in his house, a door that he had not noticed before and could not get through it, could not get through it. Um, and so, uh, did some, did some research found that there was, um, a person who might know how to get through there, you know, a a person who was connected with the house in the past before they had the house. And so got the other player characters involved and they went, um, to this party, uh, that, uh, where they thought they could find out some more information about her and, and, uh, and they did. And it was all very strange because the party sort of existed in an alternate state of consciousness for all the attendees. And, uh, and there were, uh, sort of some significant offshoots of, of, uh, other plot lines that kind of intersected in that, in that party. But eventually, you know, they, they went off to, to find this woman and, and that's, uh, and then of course, because it's invisible sun, she didn't turn out to be an, uh, a human woman at all, but she was, uh, this weird creature. But anyway, the, the point is, um, you know, that, that became that, that, that character's personal story, uh, translated into a, something that the entire group did, um, mostly because they just wanted to help him out. But you can imagine um, other sort of scenarios where uh, once one person's personal thing might actually affect the other characters because the other characters are indeed linked to each other. And in fact, one of the things in character creation that, that uh, you, you create are called... Um, uh, let me, uh, I think... The, I think the current working title anyway is, is bonds and bonds are specific ties to the other player characters, not to NPCs. And so, uh, you can develop those things and you can actually, um, as the game develops and your, and your character advances, you can intensify those bonds and it actually uh, affects the game mechanically. Right. And, and, you know, that is expressed in a narrative way of, you know, Oh, you, you know, you are my best friend and I would, I would give my life for you. And that gives us this bond and that kind of thing. Okay. I feel like you keep asking these questions and I go off on these really weird tangents. Well, I mean, it seems appropriate for the game though. I mean, uh, (laughs) given the setting, um, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, uh, it's a new game. It sounds like it's promising a lot of uh, a different playing experience. So, uh, hearing more about it, um, and you mentioned, you know, that it's uh, the draft of it uh, of a particular term of the bond. Um, is this how far along is this game in development uh, at this point? You know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, the the basics. You know, we, I, the basic concepts are all there, um, but like actual formal writing of the game has just barely started, to be honest. Okay. Um, and so it is it is just this bare bones kind of thing. Um, actual outside the company playtesting isn't going to probably occur until the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the game itself isn't, is, is going to be released in the late next year. So we still have a lot of time. Um, but at the same time, you know, these concepts and whatnot that we have, have, I've been working on Invisible Sun off and on for about two years. So, but it's always kind of been in the background until the last maybe six months or so. Okay. Okay. 
Um, so do you feel like, I mean, is the work primarily like game refining game mechanics at this point or like fleshing out the setting or a little bit of both? It's it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, it's one of those things where (laughs) I've got notebooks kind of scrolled away all over the house and I'll get some weird idea and sometimes it'll be for the setting and sometimes it'll be for mechanic and I'll go scribble it down. Um, and now it's, you know, uh, I I shouldn't say now, uh, uh, starting about maybe two months ago, it became time to, sit down and make those all these you know miscellaneous notes into a thing you know mm-hmm. um and so actually longer than two months it's been anyway it doesn't matter, <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. um so anyway uh it, it the the two are very very much the setting and the mechanics very very much being developed in tandem mm-hmm. um much more so than the cipher system which uh, while it started as the system for Numenera, even when I wrote Numenera, I realized, you know, I could do a really cool superhero game with this setting, for example, or the system, for example. Um, you know, I could, I could do science, you know, just a straight up space opera, whatever. This, this game is very, very tied to its setting. Um, the, the dice mechanics are, are sort of, um, cemented in the idea that um, magic is a fluid and unpredictable thing, but it is also sort of the core of the game. And so um, basically it's a, it's the kind of thing where you can, you can end up rolling multiple dice to see if you succeed on something. Um, But at its core, you're rolling, you know, if you're just doing a basic task, you're rolling one die and that's it's always just a mundane die, right? So you're I don't know you're picking a lock or something. Um, but then if you're if you're using anything that's magical to make that easier, then you start adding in more dice, and each one of those is a magic die. But the, each one of those dice increases the chance that you will get some kind of magical complication, right? That something will go weird because you're using magic. Um, and the interesting thing I think is that uh, you know that that it just increases the probability and the, and the math of, of adding multiple dice, uh, to the, to the probability is, is an interesting one. Um, it isn't, it isn't straightforward, but the wrench that I throw into all of that is, um, you know, in that example, if it's, if you're picking a lock, if it's a magical lock, there, you might, it might require multiple successes, Right. right? And so now all of a sudden I have to use magic to even have a shot at it, right? If I have to get two successes, I can't roll one die um, and, and hope to succeed. Uh, so uh, it, I, 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 there, there's, a, there's a play off of that idea, uh, uh, of that concept of magic requiring magic that I, that I really like and it fits the setting very, very well. I see. Um, and speaking of other game mechanics, uh, the game also requires a board, or at least for not in development mode, but like when you're all meeting together uh, right. with that. Uh, can you explain some of the significance of what the board does sure. and the other components that go with that? So that's the it's it's called the Path of Suns, and um, you can see an image of it if you go to pathofsuns.com actually. And uh, basically, this is. This is where you're playing the sooth cards, and um, it shows the order in which you play them, um, and sometimes, but not always, uh, a certain card on a certain sun symbol on the on will will interact in an interesting way. Um, and you mentioned before the the big hand sculpture. That's that's a thing that we call the testament of suns, and uh, as you're playing sooth cards on the uh, Path of Suns, the you know the, those effects that I was talking about—they're very very short term. But sometimes you'll get an effect that will be a much longer term, and that means that that card actually goes into the hand, and the hand is you know sitting there on the table displaying the card so that everyone can see it, and it's a constant reminder that that card is is kind of has now a long term effect on that session, and. Uh, and so that's how the the path of sons and the testament of sons kind of interact, and how they interact with the game. 
Um, so that anything you're playing in the Path of Sons is is probably a, a very brief kind of alteration to the way magic works. And the, but the Testament of Sons is something that's longer term. I see. Um, interesting. Are there any other game components that we? I mean, because there's there's a lot with the box, uh, like the Gormor pads, or uh, and the I guess there's already pre pre generated characters are pretty obvious. But um, are there right. any other elements we've kind of left out? Uh, so um, spells in this game, um, you don't you don't have to ever cast a spell in this game. Like I said, there are, there are different ways that you can express your magic, but most characters will, will sort of end up with a handful of spells. But spells are not like uh, it's certainly not like D and D or or you know kind of class based games like that where you've got you know you're sort of guided on a path of okay now I got my first level spells and then I have my second level spells it's not like that they're much more sort of piecemeal I'm going to learn the spells I want to learn mm-hmm. uh, more like like say Call of Cthulhu in that way right and um, and so that's what the groom the grimoire pads are for keeping track of that there are also these things in the game. That are called uh, ephemera, which are uh, there's a type of ephemera called uh, incantations, and incantations are basically spells that you learn, but they're but they're very very brief and fleeting, and they don't work for very long. And so you 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 can keep track of them on your grimoire pad as well. Um, let's see what other uh, so um, there's a there's a lot of cards in the game. Um, card the cards in addition to the sooth deck. There are cards for your spells, you know, so you've got that as a handy reference in front of you. You're not flipping through a big book or, or something like that. Um, but also the other, like the the incantations and the ephemera that I was talking about, um, longer term sort of magical objects, which are called artifacts. Uh, all of that stuff is on cards, uh, and I I am a I'm a big proponent of that. I I I hate flipping through books in the middle of a game. Um, and so, you know, if everyone just has what they have, what they need in front of them right there, there's no referencing, there's no flipping pages, sure. right? Um, there's a lot of tokens in the game um, that uh, involve, there's different kinds of sort of, we don't use the word experience points, but but it's a fine analogy. There are different kinds of experience points in the game. Um and uh, they have uh, different kinds of, of tokens associated with them, and then, then there are different. Uh, like I said before, there were different. There are different orders that the character can belong to, um, and again, this kind of has to do with the way that you express magic. And um, there's a very straightforward sort of spellcastery type characters, and they have different. Uh, different components that help them keep track of what spells they have active and whatnot. But, but a maker or a weaver or these other kinds of characters have their own sorts of very, um, physical tactile objects that help them kind of track their abilities so that it's a very, it's a very physical tactile experience when you're actually at the table. Mm Uh, and that can be, yeah, like a very enjoyable experience uh, for some players. I know playing a, a D&D dungeon crawl with, if somebody has, you know, the Dwarven Forge terrain and minis and everything's painted and looks really nice, it's a much more memorable experience than, um, you know, a piece of scratch paper and little, you know, coins to represent <laughs> characters. Um, but the designers of 3rd Edition it probably won't surprise you that I was really, really big into Dwarven Forge and miniatures. And when I played D&D, it was, yeah, that, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and one thing is, though, this is not just you working on this game. Uh, this is, uh, you have your company working on it, too. Uh, what Do you know what some of the other uh, designers uh, or employees of your company are going to be working on in particular? Like, I know uh, Dennis Detweiler, you know, uh, I've talked to him uh, quite a few times. I know he he said he's working on it. Um, yes, Dennis uh, is the managing editor at MCG, and so he will be the the main editor on this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm already you know working with him on on that, and then you know the the presentation and whatnot as when we as we're moving into that um, aspect of the development of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine you know we've got uh, Bruce Cordell and Shauna Germain. Um, right now, 
they've all been participating in the play test and the feet giving feedback and whatnot, but you know, it's certainly, uh, likely that they will, um, you know, dip their, if, if not into the, if not into the game itself, into the supplements and whatnot, I'm sure they'll be dipping their toes into invisible sun as well. Although, um, you know, it's worth noting that even though we have this really cool, exciting project, um, we have a lot of stuff going on that isn't invisible sun too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, Shauna's working on this cool cipher system setting called Predation, which has got time travel and dinosaurs and all this stuff in it. And, you know, Bruce is working on some cool Numenera stuff right now and a novel for The Strange. And uh, there's a lot going on. <laughs> uh, well, it seems like you still had time to come up with, um, like, the, the, the Invisible Suns website or the Path of Suns uh, website came out before as sort of a teaser with these kind of audio clues embedded in it. And there's apparently some sort of, like, alternate reality game or uh, scavenger hunt or something for it uh, going on right yeah, now. Yeah, doing some geocaching-like stuff um that uh you know where people can go out and follow the coordinates and find some interesting things that will lead them to clues you know even right now with the kickstarter we've got um there's some weird stuff kind of embedded in some of the details of the kickstarter or the associated web pages that we link off of that have uh you know, secrets embedded in them right it's 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 it all comes back to that being one of the main themes of the game where there are these, you know, the, these secrets, both, both on both levels, right? Where, you know, it's your character interacting and finding secrets, or it's you interacting with the physical components of the game or the websites or, or you know, mm-hmm. a weird cash out in the middle of the wilderness in Florida, um, you know, that uh, are also involved in uncovering secrets. Okay. Uh, has that response been pretty good from the community so far about that? I, I did see something on G plus about somebody finding one, uh, one of the caches and, uh, Oh, I had to go out and find this and that kind of thing. So, yeah, well, so, um, we, uh, we, we've had nine caches so far. Um, actually by the time your listeners, uh, hear this, it'll already be pretty much knowledge that there are more than nine now. Um, but uh, when we when we launched the Kickstarter, there were or when we launched the website, there were nine, and like the first seven were found within forty eight hours, and they're all over the country. Um, and so that was very exciting to see that uh, there's a whole G plus community now um, uh, that is dedicated to the various puzzles and the things that we have in, you know, the clues of, and the secrets that we have embedded in various websites and whatnot. And so that's really fun. You know, that's not, uh, so far, right. That all of that stuff is, is promotion. Um, but it, but it is, it's also really kind of conveying the spirit of the game and the secrets sure. and, Right. And so I, I'm really excited that people are embracing that and taking off on that. And uh, the response is, is really been very exciting. We've been very, very happy. Okay. That's uh, good to hear. Um, and certainly uh, just in the first day of the Kickstarter launching, um, when we're recording this, it's almost made its goal. It's, it's, it went up quite a bit <laughs> in the first day. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion about the game. Is there anything you'd like to address from the community? Because there's been a lot of, uh, I would say, healthy debate uh, about the game. Because uh, it is very, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's different from the average RPG. I mean, the average RPG is like one forty to $60 book. And you, then you get your own dice. This is a you know a one hundred ninety seven dollar boxed set that is very much a kind of deluxe product. I would I would say. Um, right. So, is there anything you'd like to address from the community discussions you've seen? Um, you know, uh, obviously, it is uh, it, it's expensive, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's uh, kind of why we wanted to go to Kickstarter, right? It was. You know, the, the idea for this, I mean, we knew going in, right, the idea for the game that I wanted to create was, you know, involved a lot of stuff, right, and involved a lot of work and involved a lot of very specialized components and, and cool aspects of things. And, I mean, one of the things that I, I just, I don't know that if we've, that we've conveyed very well is that the, that aspect of it 
um, of, you know, the secrets that are sort of hidden within the physical components of the game and the use of the physical components of the game, that sort of, that is the game. Um, and that is, that is an integral part of, of my vision for the game. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it isn't for everyone. And I understand that. And, and, and that's recognizing that I think is, is kind of the key to, uh, you know, running a company like ours, because at the same time that we have something like Invisible Sun, uh, coming out, which is, as you said, a, a very deluxe product with a lot of cool components and everything. In a couple of months, we have, uh, a Numenera starter set, which, uh, will be coming into stores. And, you know, we've done everything we can to make that a very affordable price product. It's 25 bucks. And, and so, you know, you can pick that up and, and kind of learn all the ins and outs of, of Numenera and, and, and start playing with your friends. Um, and which is similar to what um, some other companies have done, but you know, it is, there's a, uh, basically all I guess what I'm saying is, is that, is that there is a, there is a range of different kinds of products and, and they sort of require different sorts of price points. I mean, if we could make this game cheaper, we absolutely would, right? <laughs> um, but we have to kind of make the game cost what it costs. Um, and, and, and we want to be true to the vision of the game. Because that's really what Kickstarter, to me, is all about. I mean, right. if, if we're just going to put out, um, you know, another game... Um, we, we can do that. We know how to do that. Um, but Kickstarter allows us to say, Hey, you know, we have this, we have this weird idea. Um, what do you guys think? Right. And if, if it had, you know, flopped and if it, it just right. kind of, let no, the market speak. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It would have been a way for us to say, Oh, okay. Right. That isn't a good idea. Nobody wants that game do something else, Monty. Um, and, and so that's, that's a way that Kickstarter is so valuable. Um, I see that sometimes like, you know, people put forth a Kickstarter for something and the Kickstarter fails and everyone says, Oh, that's so terrible or everything. And, and it is right. That, that, that's sad. But at the same time, it's not because 10 years ago, that person would have just made that thing and no one would have bought it and they would have lost a lot of money. And so Kickstarter is this kind of great way to gather intelligence before you see yeah. a whole bunch of money and send a bunch of stuff to the printer and, and sure. you know, uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of Kickstarters where they, they can't, they fail or they cancel halfway through. Then they come back in a few months, totally restructured. And they do very, they do quite well because they've gotten that marketing. Uh, exactly. Research is so valuable, you know, and it was impossible just, you know, five or 10 years ago. There was, there was no way Mm -hmm. really to say, Hey guys, I have an idea. Right. You know, Uh, that's true. That's true. I mean, you, uh, uh, never would have seen certain things. I mean, everything from, you know, that ogre set from years ago, that was, you know, a giant box that was like $200 or whatever, uh, to, uh yeah uh to numenera i mean you, you, there's a lot of uh unusual uh success stories that you wouldn't have seen otherwise Absolutely. Um, one thing uh, i did see mentioned on the g plus page was that someone asked you if you were going to look into making a digital version of that through like there's a program called tabletop simulator uh i'm not sure if you're familiar with it but it like it it's a steam game but when you join it you're put in this 3d environment that simulates a tabletop and then you can create cards or a board game. So you can play a board. There are like multiple board games you can get as DLC for the game. Um, and so I don't know what the, the specifics of that, but would that be something you would at least, at least look into to see if a tabletop simulator version of this would be uh, worth doing? I can I can see looking into that. I, I am not familiar with that. That's actually the first I'd heard of it. Um, okay. Well, it was discussed on the G Plus community um, okay. page, but Tabletop Simulator, um, it does have its own kind of piracy problem where people will, fans will create their own version of a board game without asking the board game company and then just upload it as a free download. Uh, but uh, I know there are licensed versions of a lot of uh, card games on it uh, and board games. So... 
Um, that might be because yeah, I, 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 as it is, you couldn't just sell a PDF of this game. It sounds like no, no, um, you you couldn't. Um, that, and that I mean, believe me, <laughs> we have we have thought long and hard about how to make that happen because I mean, Frank, to be just very frank and and capitalistic, right? Uh, we make a lot more money. Uh, if we could also sell a PDF version of this because, you know, we'd apply, we'd appeal to an even larger audience and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it would not be just, it would not be true to the vision of, of what we've done. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I did this big, huge D20 source book called Tolis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the whole point of it was, it was this big, super deluxe, you know, textured cover, cloth bookmarks, you know, all the bells and whistles. And, and that was, um, something that I, uh, you know, to me, the nature of that was very fitting for the material. Right. And, uh, eventually we did, uh, that was a that was a different company. That was a Melhavik Press was my D twenty company, and Melhavik Press did eventually release uh, a PDF version of that, but it was only with some reluctance, right? Because as a creator, I I want to give people the experience um, that I've that I've designed, right? That I want to I want to be true to that, and I want to. Um, give people what they're paying for. And, and to some extent, you know, if you get the electronic version of Tolis, you're not, you're not really getting the Tolis experience. And, and it, it, I mean, it sort of makes me, I, I, like I said, I went into that with, with some reluctance. Um, but, and, and basically only did it because the print version sold out and there was no way we could reprint it. Yeah. Um, Unless you kickstart it. <laughs> right. That wasn't available at the time, I guess. Right. Um, and, and, and Invisible Sun is that tenfold, right? It just, it is, you know, if, even if we could put together an electronic version of the game, it would be, it would be so inferior. It would lose so much, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, just sitting down and reading this on your iPad. I mean, it, it is so much more than just the text that goes into the books in the game. Sure. You know, it's like, it would be like having a PDF of, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just monopoly or risk, right? It would be like, okay, well, I mean, you know, to 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 a real uh, to an extent, right? Risk is the rules, but it is also the cool board with the pieces and the you know, and monopoly sure. is the shoe and the race car and the houses, right? Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of my thoughts on that. No, and the, I mean, like, as a creator, you kind of want, like, you have a vision that you want to share, and you know, if something changes that vision, it's not—is it really yours? And I mean, that's a, that's certainly a valid argument. I know, at least though, for the PDF, one thing I've I've learned is that uh, some of the people, for just for my example, um, prefer the PDF because, uh, for example, they have some sort of uh, disability problem, and reading a PDF through accessibility options is easier than reading a print book for them. Uh, and in that case, but that's again, the Tolis thing is just a book. Uh, there's no board, there's no uh, other physical components. So uh, it's kind of one of these eternal questions, I guess, for artists and writers is like, you know, what what do I how what is my experience versus being able to make sure that the people who want to read my story or listen to my story uh, can experience it. So it's just one of those things I don't think that will ever be kind of resolved uh, (laughs) satisfactorily. Well, Um, I I guess uh, two things, right? One is um, if there actually is a a disability issue involved, um, you know, a person like that could contact us because we are, we are, always tried to be very, very accommodating to things like that. Um, but the other thing is, um, you know, I, I actually am a huge proponent and a big fan of, you know, electronic products, um, you know, uh, way back in, in the day, right. Uh, I was, I was one of the first people that was releasing PDFs as game products. And, and so, you know, I recognize that there are cool things about, you know, it's really nice to be able to like use the search function, right? Things yeah. like that. So, um, we are including, um, they're, they're not 
it, it's not a PDF version of the game, but it is what we're calling sort of these searchable electronic files that um, just sort of in more in an encyclopedic form includes a lot of the setting material and a lot of the rules material so that if you want to, you know, oh, what was what was that guy's name again, right? You can just do a quick search for it. So uh, we want to, we, we are including that with the game. That is, um, you know, it... It is it is a component of the game. It is not the game. Okay. Uh, cool. Um, yeah. No. Like I said, it's just it's just one of those things. Um, and it. Uh, and again, the physical components. I mean, there's if it's if it involves a physical component, there's no way to substitute that with an electronic product. I don't think. Um, I think so, so either. Um, to yeah. There might- without changing the game itself, without making it a different game, I think that that's kind of the argument. Um, you could, yeah. So, uh, anything else you'd like to add uh, for uh, to talk about Invisible Sun? Uh, well, there's, I, I could, I could keep <laughs> you for hours and hours more, but uh, but I think that, I think that's sort of the general, very very high level ideas behind it, mm-hmm. and uh, and and what we're trying to do with it, and you know, sort of the problems that we're trying to address with it. Um, and and the gameplay that we're trying to encourage. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I look forward to uh, seeing how the Kickstarter does and um, reading about the game. Um, cool. So, uh, this is Ross RPPR. Uh, talk to you guys next time. <laughs>